Well, listeners, uh, this is Mike, and as we are recording episode 81, is it? We're 81? That's right. Okay, episode 81 of the Adult Music Podcast, we are staring down the wind tunnel of an oncoming typhoon, which is uh, scheduled to hit uh, tomorrow, probably when you're listening to this uh, episode, in fact. Yeah, that's right. It's a big one. What are they calling it? Nanmadol? Is that the name? That's the name they gave to it. Although they don't use the names in Japan. So in Japan, they just give them numbers. Who gave it that name then? Well, I believe other Asian and Pacific countries use the name. And sometimes you'll see it in the English press in Japan. But in Japan, in the Japanese news, the typhoons just get a number. And this is number 14. Of the year. Of the year. 14 in the in the Pacific Ocean, in other words. Yeah. Okay, so they don't all hit us then. But uh, we've been lucky so far this year. We have not had any uh, direct hits, haven't been in the path, but looks like this time it's going to come is. right for us. So Yeah, but it is coming up a path like from kind of south. It's coming kind of northeast. It's coming from yeah. the southwest. And that usually by the time it reaches us, it's often Hopefully, weakened yeah. a bit. So we should be okay. A lot of the previous ones went more toward directly to China or to the Korean Mm. Peninsula. But once fall comes, they sort of get that hook. And this one is uh, hooking our way. So hopefully the electricity will stay on and we can just hope so. Listen, listen to music, (laughs) listen to music in the wind and rain. And I'm your other co-host Russ over here. And as Mike mentioned, this is, this is Mike (laughs) episode 81 of adult music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Yeah. We're getting there. We'll have mature minds soon. I think we're going to uh, have to play the necrology theme again this week. Okay, so here it is. Go ahead. Here it goes. All right. Because there's been a death again. Another death. We should mention. musical death. uh, Not as tragic as uh, previous weeks, but a little sad nonetheless. Mr. Ramsey Lewis passed away in his sleep on September 12th at the age of 87. So he led a well, full life. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good full life. I'm pretty happy about that. And uh, he was a man with very enjoyable grooves. So he had a... Right. I think if you're able to produce grooves like that, you're doing okay in life. You know, like you have a good inner life. Too. Yeah. So he was uh, a native of Chicago, born in 1935. And he was famous for the Ramsey Lewis Trio. And he became kind of a pop sensation with his upbeat, groovy jazz style. Um, 1965, they had the big hit, The Aim Crowd. Yeah. And that actually reached number five on the pop charts, number two on the album charts. Another another fun fact about that tune is the, uh, the, the mods in England liked that tune hmm. back in the day. It was like really one of their kind of signature tunes and then he had some follow-ups the following year uh hang on sloopy wade in the water the old that's one of my favorites wade in the water i recommend that and uh in the 70s uh he switched over to uh, electric piano for a while although he went back to acoustic later on after that and uh he had like a uh, morning show in chicago i don't know if that was in the 90s and he had a uh Jazz Foundation, Ramsey Lewis Foundation, promoting musical instrument education. And let's see, 2006 or thereabouts, he had a 13-episode Legends of Jazz television series that he was the host of, too. 
a long career and always remembered for those kind of crossover feel-good jazzy pop tunes too so rest in peace Ramsey Lewis yeah. you still hear those grooves occasionally in, in jazz today like uh, maybe you'll get like I say a, a swing rhythm or something mm-hmm. like that there's kind of like a, a Ramsey Lewis kind of groove yeah. that when people will apply to you know musicians will apply to a song you can always tell yeah. it's, it really he's, he's really identified with it a unique feel to it yeah yeah and so it's really happy so check out his music if yeah you're check out Ramsey Lewis familiar. If you're listening to this podcast, I assume you would know. You probably know who he is, yeah. Anyway, this evening, we're going to uh, do a guitar-centered episode. We haven't done a lot of guitar music all at once in a while, so got some really good stuff to check out here. Yeah, in classical, we've got too much stuff. We're going to have to do another episode soon, after this one. I think we're going to call this one uh, Summer Strumming. Yeah, because it's our last... Strum of the summer, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but we were saying we've got so much guitar music. We're going to have another one coming up in the fall. So yeah. stay tuned yeah. for more guitar music. Before we get into that, I want to remind everyone that in our episode description, you can find links for Spotify and Apple Music for all the recordings we'll talk about. Also at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist where you can get all the music in one place on Deezer our preferred streaming platform. You can also follow the podcast there. Just look us up, Adult Music Podcast. Now, if you don't see the full description on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on now, or the links aren't uh, active and clickable, come over to our host site, podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Look us up, Adult Music Podcast. Everything's easy to follow there. If you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe on your preferred app or platform. Take a moment, give us a ranking or write a review. That helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations. We get more listeners that way, and that always makes us happy. You can also follow us on our Facebook page. You can get extra info during the week. I put up a ton of releases this week because it was a a huge jazz week. There's a lot there. Yeah, I I rather stupidly put up like the Ramsey Lewis stuff on my personal Facebook page. Oh, yeah, you could have put that on our page. I got yeah. to remember to put that stuff up on the uh, adult music one. But uh, yeah, Russ has Russ has been keeping the jazz going there. There's a good ch- there's good classical stuff coming up, and I should put yeah. some of it up. So yeah, there's even a uh, an acoustic guitar and clarinet version of Jimi Hendrix's Little Wing. I put up. check that out. It's pretty neat. Uh, along with some sax releases, uh, some other stuff. A new Barry Sax one that came out. Uh, I think I put that up there today. So right. we'll maybe be getting to those in an episode. But if you want to find uh, maybe stuff that's hard to know about, check the Facebook page every day with my morning coffee early. I'm checking out those new lists, and I put the ones I think are most interesting right up there so you can get them yeah, you know, I as they come out. Maybe i got to check some of that out too. Yeah. I, t- I check the classical list only once a week, really, but, you know. You can also leave a message or comment on our Facebook page there. And otherwise, if you want to get in contact directly, uh, any comments or questions, we'd be happy to hear from you. Just uh, drop us an email at adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, write to us. We we don't hear from enough people. Yeah. yeah. We often hear from the musicians, though. That's kind of cool, because they, they seem to listen, and they, um, you know, yeah. they usually have good comments that's got good feedback so far so. Yeah, good feedback yeah oh we did hear from uh daniel this week too oh dan yeah okay Bernardson daniel Bernardson. About, uh, another rinitsky recording one that's been shelved for a while is gonna make the daylight so that'll be something to look forward to too 
Yeah, we both uh, did a search for it on the, the internet and haven't come up with it yet. It doesn't seem to be. No, no, yeah. he, he's in the know though, because he he kind of hears from you know being a Ranitsky scholar, he hears about you yeah. know what's up. But apparently, they recorded this even before the uh, Ranitsky uh, project. They have went one up. other one other Ranitsky recording that's CPO with a different okay. conductor. Goes back to two thousand six or so. So this was after that. But okay. hopefully, this one will make it out this fall, and uh, we'll have another one to check out. More symphonies from Ranitsky. We always look forward that to that. That could be cool. Yeah. All right. So this week we're on uh, basically plucked instruments. The guitar. You know, the guitar. Strum, pluck, fretted, that sort of thing. And uh, we're going to start out with uh, my favorite classical album of the week. I'm just leading off with it since it's you know in the Baroque mm-hmm. era. An album called Plucked Bach. And um, by Alain Sariel. He's an Israeli... Oh, how how can we call him? Guitarist, lutenist, uh, man of all plucked instruments, <laughs> I guess. Lutenist sounds almost um, and he's, like he, a food description, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. It's like he's born in 1986, so he's a pretty young guy. Well, I don't know. Is he? Yeah, I guess he is. Oh. That's in, He's in his 30s then, right? He's 86. Still young compared yeah, to us. Yeah, okay. Cause I, yeah, because I look at the years now and I think, you know, we're <laughs> <laughs> born in the 60s, so we're in our in our 50s now. Anyway, so I don't know. Anyway, this is on the uh, Pentatone label. All right, let me tell you a little bit about um, Mr. Sariel first. Um, he plays numerous plucked string instruments on this album. And when we talk about these individual tracks, I will indicate the instrument you're hearing. So you could go to the um, the link that we provide in our, you know, in the uh, with with the podcast. You could hear the. Uh, the music, and you'll know what you're listening to here. Although I think you said some of them actually have a list of what he's actually playing. Yeah, it's on the um, Deezer has it, and you can also look at it on the Amazon.com listing for the album. It has all okay, the instruments. So it's readily available. Yeah. Now the album cover, you can see him uh, fondly looking at his uh, instrument collection. He kind of reminds me of. Uh, of me looking at my CD collection, really. <laughs> that one, <laughs> the one mandolin there is so small, it looks like a half of an eggplant. <laughs> right, yeah, there's one. I, I, Yeah, I actually know which one it is, too. It's, I think that's the uh, the Cremonese one. Oh, isn't that a kind of sauce? My yeah, eggplant with it, a, it doubles as a, a sauce. Cremonese yeah, you like sauce that. on it. Cremonese, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Cremona, of course, is where, um, you know, Stradivarius mm. lived, so he... Um, Made those violins there, too. All right, so on the album cover, you see five instruments, but there are six instruments played on the album. On the album cover, the oud is missing, and it only gets one track on the album anyway. But you can, if you buy the CD in the booklet, you can see all six instruments, and they're kind of laid out so that you can kind of see what they look like. And some of them are mm. tiny, and then there's one that's really gigantic that you can actually use as a suit of armor if attacked, I think, because it'll cover your whole body. Or use for archery anyway. Yeah, right. That would one. be the Luto Atturbato. So you can check that out on Wikipedia. Just type the, these in. Okay, there are six instruments. Okay, the six instruments are, I'll just tell you what they are, the Baroque guitar, which is like a modern guitar, except it's a lot slimmer and shallower, and it kind of makes the lighter sound with little sustain. There's the arch lute, which is gigantic with a very long neck and lots of, I guess, droning strings. Um, the Cremonese mandolin, which Russ talked about, it's really small. The Neapolitan mandolin, which is also very small. Actually, no, that's actually not so bad. There's the oud and the liuto atiorbato, which is gigantic. 
All right, so anyway, let's go on. This is a recording of the Bach cello suites, with some of them, arranged for the guitar. Now, we've heard um, another album. We, we, uh, we already did, mm-hmm. like, a recording of uh, cello suites on, of the Bach cello suites on guitar on this podcast, and the name of the guitarist, he, did, he plays the guitar on, on all of them, and I don't remember who it is now. Oh, no, it wasn't a guitar. It was a lute. Lute. lute he, he was, plays, yeah. But he plays the same instrument throughout. Here we're going to get a, a variety of sounds, which kind of made this album for mm. me really, really interesting. I really enjoyed it a lot. Also, if you're familiar with the Bach cello suites, um, they sound a lot different on a guitar-type yeah. instrument than they do on the cello. They have an absolute, completely different character. And I always find that really intriguing, too. Usually the harmony is a little more filled out. The sustain, you can pluck the... Uh, you can play the chords like together without rolling mm. them as the cello will often do. Cause, and also they're plucked here, so there's a bit of an attack, whereas in the cello, they're mm. bowed. Okay, so you're hearing mostly a, a legato line. You're going to get a lot more variety here. Anyway, the first track is a little introduction. Cello suite number five, Prelude, and this is the only um, movement from that um, suite that we have here. And this one, on this one, he plays the Cremonese mandolin. This is the only track we that we hear this instrument on. In a way, it's too bad because this instrument has a very intimate and personal utterance type of style. There's like a light sweetness to the tone, mm. and very little sustain. Um, you, you hear the note and it's yeah, gone. Delicate. Sariel shapes these phrases beautifully, so they feel like some secret being told. It's almost like this thing is it's kind of quiet. It's like it it feels intimate, mm. like someone's whispering into your ear. Uh, when this instrument's played. And I really loved this track and the the whole sound of it. Um, the lack of sustain leaves a lot of space, but that space is pregnant with the ideas rendered by, rendered by the previous phrases. Really beautiful and touching start to the album. You couldn't do better than sample this track, but then you'd miss all the rest, listen to the <laughs> whole thing. Uh, the recording is close enough that the attack on the strings by the plucking hand can be clearly heard, yet far enough that a sense of the space can be heard by the slight reverb on the higher notes. Of course, the character of the piece is completely transformed from its cello version, as we said. Uh, I don't think a cello can achieve this kind of soft intimacy, because uh, cello tends to be really throaty sound. You know, it's got this a lot of uh, harmonics going on when it when it's played. Um, yeah, this sounds completely new. So I just, it's right away, I was really intrigued. Okay, tracks two through seven, we get the entirety of cello suite number one. I should mention, we on this album, we're going to hear Cello Suite Number 1 and Cello Suite Number 2 in their entirety. And Sariel, in his booklet note, says that he was going for like a lightness and darkness sort of feel. So the Cello Suite Number 1 would be the light mm. one. And Cello Suite Number 2 has a darker feel to it, and he'll use a bigger instrument. Although on this one, he on Cello Suite Number 1 here, um, he, BWBV1007, he uses the arch lute, which is a very big instrument. Okay, so this is the light. Now, the opening prelude is very, very famous. Everyone's heard it. It's the one with all the arpeggiated figures on it. It registers well in the arch lute, which is deeper um, and has more sustain than the Cremonese mandolin we heard earlier. Um, Sariel is a sensitive player, plucking the instrument gently and producing a full, rounded, though quiet tone. He uses a lot of rubato in this piece, uh, giving it a more intimate character than we're used to, which I like. Um, I like the personalness he plays with really throughout this album. It's, it feels very intimate, this entire album. The second mo- movement, Alemans, which these are all the names of Baroque era dances now from here on. 
The cleanness of attack makes this uh, Aleman stand out with the bass notes and melody notes being played simultaneously. And they're completely distinguishable too. There's a lot of rubato used here too, and I think this is a good strategy. Given the quick decay of the instrument, he leaves a lot of silence, and I really like that too. And he phrases sensitively, the sound is gentle and soothing. The third movement, Courant, has a gorgeous sunny feel. Um, again, the light touch, lots of gentle plucking, producing tones that caress the ear and the soul. Hmm. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> How's that for pretension? <laughs> anyway. Uh, fourth movement, Saraband. This is always a slow dance and always, the, for me, the highlight of these uh, suites. And I like the fullness of the chords that begin this arrangement. He plays them as block chords together. Um, the notes are plucked a bit harder here and allowed to ring more than we've heard so far. I think he wants the, uh, it's a slower piece. I think he wants the, a little more sustain. Uh, still comes across beautifully and sensitively. Minuets one and two, fifth uh, movement. This is a dancey minuet. Um, it doesn't come across with as much bounce on the cello when you hear it there. So you get the real kind of sort of bounce to the, the dance element on this, uh, in this performance. Uh, the percussive quality of the guitar plucking and lightness of tone give this an appealing bounce, as I said. And the sixth movement, Jig, has kind of a light, happy-go-lucky feel to it. Um, it bounces along also. And I really enjoyed the way Sariel incorporates the qualities of his instrument into the interpretation of these works, uh, particularly the way he used the plucking as a kind of rhythm underlining light percussive effect. And also he brings out the dance elements in the... Um, the more dancey sort of movements. And I really, I always appreciate that. I really think, I have this, um, that if you're learning an instrument, if you're at the uh, the conservatory and you're playing, say, Baroque music, you should be required to take a Baroque dance class mm. just so you know what it feels like to do those dances when you're going to play them. Obviously, you wouldn't really dance to these, but even so, you want to get the right feel right. to the rhythm, you know. And uh, a lot of people are just reading off the score, and it doesn't really mm. help very much. I'm, I'm a big proponent of that. If I open my music school one day, <laughs> there's going to be there will be dancing classes. Anyway, track eight. This is a movement from Cello Suite Number Six, BWV Ten Twelve, One Thousand Twelve. Uh, this is uh, movement five, Gavats One and Two, and this is played on the Baroque guitar, which is the most guitar-sounding instrument on this album. It produces a shallower tone than the arch lute we just heard, and Sariel is practically strumming the chords in this work as he simultaneously plays the melodies. Uh, the second gavotte in the second minute is smoother and lower in profile than the first and has a relaxing quality in this interpretation on Baroque guitar. This is almost unidentifiable from the version <laughs> that you hear when the cello <laughs> plays it. So give it a listen. It's kind of it's nice. It's all the same, of course, you know, um, harmonically, but... Um, the timbre just completely, and you know, the whole approach completely changes it. That's one of the things people often say to me, like, "Why do you have so many albums by Bach?" Well, <laughs> they're not all the same. <laughs> it's it's like hearing a completely new piece of music every time, you know, because there are so many ways to approach them. So I'm always interested in that. Okay, we get to Cello Suite Number Two with tracks nine through fifteen. This is the darker um, of the two suites, BWV one thousand eight, and this is played on the Liutu. Liuto Atiorbato, which is a gigantic instrument. I remember once uh, seeing a video of uh, Rostropovich, the, the great Russian cellist, saying that he sometimes plays this suite on his own 
and dedicates it to all in the world who are sad because oh. it's kind of a dark, <laughs> sad work, you know. And uh, we get a little bit of that heaviness here. And the choice of instrument helps as well because it's the biggest instrument. The first um, prelude, uh, the first movement is a prelude. Uh, the liuto atturbato is like the arch lute, a gigantic, unwieldy instrument. It's got a longer sustain and deeper tone than even the arch lute had. And it's got a more kind of metallic sound. I have no idea what the, you know, the, it's, it's a wood instrument. I, I don't know about the strings. I imagine their gut or whatever would be used at the time. But it's got more of, the, the sound is more metallic, let's say. I'm not saying it's actual metal, but. So it's a little different in tone than the arch lute. The attack Serial uses is a bit stronger here, making this movement a bit uh, dramatic. He accentuates some of the harsh passing chords too, I guess to get that darkness in there. And those feel good too, those mm. those harsh passing chords right before the uh, the, uh, the release on the um, more tonal like you know chord that you arrive on. Second movement, Alemand. Um, the darker sound of the liuto atturbato helps the mood of these minor key pieces really well, I have to say. Sariel makes the brief dotted rhythm passages in this movement dance in a way I haven't heard before. Uh, we don't get this from the cello, you know, again, mm. because it's, it's more legato there. You know, they're more, the notes are more connected. Third movement, courant. Uh, the articulation isn't quite as clear as on the liuto atturbato with its uh, strong sustain in this quick piece. But all the voices are well outlined, so no problem there. Fourth movement, Saraband. This is a slow dance. We're hearing more of the gentleness Sariel is so good at here. But the instrument itself puts out a bigger sound than the others used so far. I especially like the twang the bass note gets at uh, the 52-second mark. Uh, the piece is played with all the tenderness this instrument allows. Uh, not as much as the smaller instruments with less sustain, but still Sariel's soul comes through. Fifth movement, Minuets 1 and 2. Uh, this has a nice dancing quality to it. Um, and I appreciate the fact that Sariel will draw out the dancing rhythms of these works, as I said. Reminding us that they are indeed rhythmically based on dances. Melody is kept in the foreground exceptionally well. This, these are really wonderful performances in every way. Um, the sixth movement, Jig, is rather slow. Played at a similar tempo to the previous Minuet. Uh, still, the dancing quality of the rhythm is well articulated. Sariel's low-key playing does a lot to accent... Low-key, maybe I mean low-string. Playing does a lot to accent the darker harmony. Oh, his low-key playing. He's just low-key. He's playing mm. quietly. <laughs> uh, it does a lot to accent the darker harmony of what is usually a joyful dance, which is no easy trick, okay? This is a... Uh, Jig is usually a pretty happy dance. All right, now... After the jig, which ends the suite, we hear the saraband again, the same one. But this time it's played on the oud, which is an Arab instrument. This instrument has a deeper tone and very little sustain. Uh, it sounds like it's recorded very closely, and Sariel is using a lot of finger strength to project the tone. Uh, he gives this lovely phrasing and an interesting sound to apply to this work. Uh, there's a kind of muted quality to the instrument throughout. A little bit of um, pitch wavering that's inherent in that right. gives it that little character. And then last, we get an original work by Sariel himself called Mandolin Partita. Um, this was composed during the pandemic lockdown of 2020. I think a lot of things happened during the yep. pandemic lockdown. For example, the adult music podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, not, during, not because of the lockdown, but during the pandemic right. anyway. 
This work is an homage to uh, Bach's cello suites. All of these uh, movements are very short. And this is played on the Neapolitan mandolin. The Neapolitan mandolin has a very thin tone and fairly long sustain for the size of its tone. Um, though there seems to be a bass tone that's sustaining as a pedal point throughout the first mo minute. Uh, like the oud in the previous track, it sounds like it's recorded very closely. The attack registers strongly through the speakers. Uh, this work is reminiscent of the famous prelude in the first cello suite in its figuration. So it's got a lot of sort of arpeggiated chords. But it takes a detour as it goes. It gets more contemplative with pauses breaking up the phrases. Uh, the second movement, Alemand, uh, brief, they're all brief, this is a minute and 42 seconds, uh, takes the shape of the Bakian Alemand, it's appealing, over pretty quickly. Third movement, Courant, uh, sounds harmonically eh, rather modern, its phrases aren't quite symmetrically shaped as in a Bach work, and it draws its ear, the ear with its slight oddness. It's fairly quick and also clocks in at under two minutes, articulation is strong from Sariel in this. The spaciousness of the room forms a bit of a halo around the sound of the instrument in this strongly plucked piece. Fourth movement, Saraband. This movement also draws some strong plucking from Sariel. He's using that uh, sustaining bass note again as well. He draws some plaintive sounds out of the instrument in the higher range, and uh, we don't get much time to absorb the mel melancholy Saraband atmosphere as this is unusually also very short. Sarabands tend to last longer because they're slow, so it takes time to, you know, get to the end. The fifth um, movement, Menuets 1 and 2, a charming rhythm and melody start this out, well articulated by Sariel. The second menuet is, ver menuet is very brief, over before you know it, and it ends with a jig. Uh, very thin tone on this one, almost nasal, <laughs> if you can say that about a plucked string instrument, and also very brief. It's appealing, and it's well-shaped, and we get some harmonic coloring at the very end. And that's the end of the album. And uh, I thought it was beautiful. I just really, from the first notes I heard, I was really uh, captivated by this. Uh, the use of different instruments in each work keeps interest up with the changing sounds, although such thoughtful performances of Bach's music on any single instrument would do the same if played with this much sensitivity. I could have listened to this entire album on any one of the... Uh, Hmm. instruments that Sariel played, really because of his the beauty of his playing. Uh, this is a pretty quiet album. You'll want to keep the volume fairly uh, low to get the right mood. Okay, it's not quietly recorded, but it's it's quiet. I wouldn't want to, you know, turn up the volume too loud on this. With its gentle tones and whispered lines, the album is perfect for late night listening and highly recommended by me. Yeah, I like this one a lot too. Overall, his style of playing is really chilled out and relaxed. Yeah. It just gives you, you know, the sense that he knows the music well and he's enjoying it in an unhurried way. Even on the faster passages, he just sounds uh, very relaxed, which makes it really nice for evening listening, like you said. Uh, this is not mm. something, normally I think, you know, Bach and Pluck, this is like a good baroque morning charge up no this is the opposite this is a chill out yeah. one at night so you get this really nice you know charm of all these different tones of the instrument they're really fun to hear the differences and then even compare the one piece we get on the oud too and then the sound quality of the recording is interesting too everything is very closely miked so you're going yeah. to hear the articulation and you know, the tones of each instrument very clearly. However, there's a really huge room reverb to it, uh, which 
helps out the you know lack of sustain on the instruments so the tones mm-hmm. linger in that space but because the mic is uh, in the optimal position that sort of room sound doesn't obscure the beauty of the sound of the instruments so i found myself drawn in and entertained relaxed and interested to hear these familiar pieces in a whole new you know sort of um, tonal atmosphere approach to the playing yeah just completely enjoyable yeah, and since you mentioned, we both mentioned the the sound quality. He really does seem to really have found the the perfect mic placement, and the perfect space mm. for this album. So I guess I'm gonna have to give the engineer a call out. First of all, the recording producer is Alon Sariel himself. Oh. oh, and recording, editing, and mastering engineer is Stefan Flock. I hope that's an O, and not an A. <laughs> anyway, Stefan Flock, and I just checked that out. Yeah, it is Stefan Flock. All right, so good yeah. work on that on this highly recommended album. Um, you can never go wrong with box music, really. It's just so you know, it just it puts you in such a good place. And this has this nice, quiet, late night atmosphere. You know, you can imagine yourself in one of those movies, you know, with some somebody like kind of cooling you off by waving <laughs> an ostrich feather really slowly yeah. you know, <laughs> while you read your chair. You know. Okay, on to the second classical guitar recording of this week and this is a new discovery for me uh Ferdinando Carulli he was born in Naples in 1770 died in Paris in 1841 and uh, this album is called Carulli Rediscovered the guitarist is Marcello Fantoni and what a fantastic guitarist he is mm. we'll get to that uh, soon the guitar he's playing they even give you this the René Francois Lacotte from 1820 I don't know if it's a, yeah, I guess it's an original. And this is on the dynamic label. Unless it's like in Italian, it would be dynamic. <laughs> I don't know, but they spell it with a Y. It's dynamic. There you go. Okay, so the booklet note gives us a little bit of a heads up as to what we're going to hear. There was a Nueva Era CD uh, made of Carulli's music from 30 years ago, uh, saying that Carulli wrote for the guitar as a solo instrument with orchestra, as a duo instrument with another guitar, and as part of chamber, you know, multiple types of chamber ensembles, um, but his works for a solo guitar are neglected. And um, I think, <laughs> I shouldn't say this right away, but I think you're going to hear why. Um, <laughs> they they have a lot of repeating patterns in them, so they're not going to be terribly interesting as, as concert material, but we have an excellent guitarist uh, playing them, and that's going to help a lot with these. Uh, he puts the best, he makes... Uh, Fantoni makes the best possible case for these works. Anyway, the booklet continues. They may have repeating patterns, but there are some interesting surprises in them. Uh, Guitarists often know him for his guitar method, Opus 27 from 1910. It was published in 1910 later on, or 18... No, sorry, that's that's a typo. 1810. Jeez, what am I doing? Uh, Which many guitarists study from. Uh, Research into his works began in the second half of the 20th century, as did... This is why we have this... You know, when we were kids... It was all what? It was Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, Vivaldi, and you know a few other guys maybe in the 20th century. And that was it, really. And then uh, we've just unearthed all these other um, composers mm-hmm. since then. Um, the whole academic research uh, machine <laughs> has, has come out with all these this really great stuff. And classical music, people are missing out. Classical music really is... Uh, there's just a wealth of material now that's yeah. just unfamiliar to a lot of people, and it's just fantastic. This is really what got me into it is the, all this, the new mm. research that went on. I think I would have gotten bored with um, 
hearing only Beethoven <laughs> like by now. <laughs> but he now now he's always cast in a new light by you know what's what was going on around him. You know. Yeah, another thing I remember from when I was a kid is you'd hear like the Four Seasons, and there'd be these giant orchestras, you know, <laughs> this Mahler-sized orchestra playing the Four Seasons. You know, it was really slow. Yeah. It was like watching like a Brontosaurus lumber across the <laughs> landscape. But then they, uh, when the um, period instruments uh, sort of research came out, and they started trying to, ensemble uh, started to try to play these works with uh, as they got fleeter and lighter and. Even a little discordant at times too, and it was all really appealing. It was kind of mm. exciting. I remember. And these days, that's really all we hear. So, let's t- let's talk about uh, this album. The first three works are called uh, Trois Divertissements à l'Espagnol, Opus Two Hundred Nine. And okay, fantastic guitar playing, but no, no, no. Maybe these. I, I guess this is a good introduction to the program. But these works weren't terribly interesting, really. It's got a lively rhythm, the first um, divertissement. A, a divertissement, incidentally, means that it's just a, it's a, a diversion, mm. a light work, something that's going to just make you happy. <laughs> it's got no real philosophical content in it. This starts out with a lively rhythm, and Fantoni gives us a fantastic bounce. Um, the bright sound his instrument gets on top of it provides a sunny atmosphere. So, yeah, he's setting a great mood right away. Um, he also has a lot of variations of tone he's capable of, and that's really what makes this album <laughs> interesting. Uh, there are a lot of sections that repeat, uh, but Fantoni makes sure they sound a little different each time we hear them, either by changing his sound or varying the attack or drawing out the accompanying voices. There's a gorgeous uh, harmonic surprise at a minute and 50 seconds. Although as the album goes on, it won't be much of a surprise. He likes this trick a lot. You got to keep in mind too. We're not supposed to be listening to a composer's life works like in order like this. You would just be hearing one or two of them back in the day. I got the impression from this. You know, you're listening to a guitarist, a sort of someone who would write a method for guitar rather than listening to like a contemporary yeah. of Bach or something, right. because he's going to bring out like all the different techniques. In some ways, these are right. very etude-like, um, because all of the things mm. you would need to practice to become a virtuoso of classical guitar show up <laughs> in these compositions. You've got the harmonics, harmonics coming out, various you know finger patterns and things. Um, they, right. they, in some ways, reflect studies, and that's not a bad thing. But uh, actually, I'll say more about that at the end. But that's the kind of nature. This is guitarists. Guitar music, in, right. you can tell that yeah. right from the beginning. If you, if you, right, he's got some nice muted playing. Also, at two minutes and forty nine seconds in that first track. Give that a listen. Fantoni, uh, the guitarist, gives a piece without much variety, a lot of it via his approach. If this was like uh, just some, like some kid practicing mm. the guitar, he's playing this, it would, it would drive you nuts. But uh, Fantoni gives us a lot of variety via his approach, and he gets a nice, clean tone throughout as well. I like his playing a lot, and I'm very interested in him already. And as the album goes on, I'll remain interested, I should say. Okay, divertissement number two is marked Grazioso. The light touch used at the beginning of this work is really lovely, so you should hear that. The line and staccato note lengths are well-defined, and I'm also listening to the faint but clearly audible bass notes under the melodic material. Fantoni has a fantastic touch. As for the music, the repetition of sections really imprints itself on the ear. There's an interesting change of pace at 2 minutes and 20 seconds where Fantoni changes his sound to something more trebly, followed by some filigree fingerwork 
We get more harmonics at 3 minutes and 19 seconds. Nice rushing figuration to the last chord. The third divertissement has a dance-like figure and Fantoni underlining the new sections with a change of tone. First thin, then full, then quiet, then loud, and it goes on. Uh, there's some impressive picking in sections of this work. It requires more right-hand picking. I should say there's a lot of strumming in all three of these works, by the way, which is unusual for a classical guitar work, where a strummed chord is usually used as a passing effect. We get on to tracks four and five, which is um, called La Clochette, or the Little Bell, Fantasy pour la guitare sur un thème de Paganini, Opus 325. <laughs> Opus 325, man. Some people wrote a lot. If you're a fan of uh, Paganini or of um, the piano, Franz Liszt's uh, famous um, piano work La Campanella, which is based on the uh, the same Paganini theme that uh, Carulli is using here, um, you'll recognize this very famous tune. It uses the final rondo of Paganini's Violin Concerto Number no. 2, known as Rondo della Campanella. And Campanella in Italian is clochette in French as a theme. Okay, the introduction is meditative. There's an introduction, track four. It's kind of acting like it's arriving at an idea, and that idea is track five, the moderato, the famous Campanella theme that violinists will recognize from Paganini's second violin concerto, and pianists will know from Liszt's La Campanella. Uh, it sounds great on the guitar, I have to say. And Fantoni, unsurprisingly, shapes the melody beautifully and brings a lot of energy to it and its accompanying figures. There's a lot more material in this movement than in the list or Paganini's version, though the famous theme keeps coming back, kind of like it's like a bunch of rondos, really. No worries. It's so appealing that you want to hear it. So, enjoyable. This is really nice. Tracks 6 through 11 are Air National de tout le peuple d'Europe. National anthems, I guess you could say, or songs, not anthems, national songs of all the people of Europe, and really you only get five of them, <laughs> Opus 73, which is just as well, really. Okay, so the first one is called Vive Henri IV, Air Francaise. This is pretty interesting. The theme uh, was the French national anthem up until the French Revolution, and then it became the Marseillaise. And then... <laughs> Uh, Louis XVIII restored this one as the national anthem in 1815. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Anyway, the Marseillaise is again, once again, the national anthem, not this. And we get a set of variations on the theme following its first statement, followed by brief pauses. Uh, the variations progress with the figuration getting faster in each succeeding variation until the last one, heard in eighth notes. Carulli is good in the variation idiom as he needs to keep the variation ideas coming which he does. <laughs> Second movement is a fandango, a dance espanol, similar to the fandango used by Boccherini in his quintet hmm. G448. This is a short piece, and it's got that circling fandango bass line with varied circling material on top. It's a good-sounding piece. Fantoni captures the idiom well in his playing. Uh, this feels like it heats up as it goes, but it's over before you know it, 2 minutes and 18 seconds. Yeah, fandangos have that quality. They kind of like feel like, you know, there's, some, there's something about to erupt. Mm. You know, it's getting hotter and hotter, you know, reaching a boiling point as they go on. The third movement, Air Anglais, Andante. We've heard a lot of this this week. This is based on God Save the King, um, which we hear a somber version of as right away as the theme. Uh, this is a pretty long set of variations at 6 minutes and 53 seconds. And um, I'm not going to go through all the variations, but let's just say it's on that. The fourth movement, or the fourth piece, Tarantella, 
That's Napolitan, Neapolitan dance. Uh, the rhythm of this tarantella is well articulated. It's not played at the breakneck speed we usually get for this dance, but still requires some athletic finger work from the guitarist, who of course delivers. Track 5 is a chanson russe, a Russian song, and it's pretty well known to fans of Beethoven. It's called Ride Cossack. It was used by Beethoven, Hummel, and Weber. I think it was used by Beethoven in one of his string quartets, I think. I don't know. But it's very popular. It was very popular at the time. It's got a mournful sound to it. And it's got... I, I counted six variations, but it says it's got only five. And they're, they're varied. Okay, track six kind of intrigued me. La Tyrolienne, which is a theme in variations. This is a Tyrolean yodler, which in English is a yodeling <laughs> song. Okay? It sounds simple in its theme statement. And I can recognize a yodeling theme there. You could kind of imagine people doing that with this. But you don't hear a yodeling attempt by the guitar. <laughs> don't worry. Okay. There's no no impression of the yodel. And then we get variations on that. Okay. Tracks 12 through 23 is a, another theme and variations. Sur l'air de la Molinara. Okay. So that theme, la Molinara, is the very famous um, Nel Corpio Non Mi Sento by Paisiello. If you know anybody who's... Uh, an opera singer, they probably had to sing this song as part of their training. It's it's very famous. And it's also usually very badly sung <laughs> because, because it's often used as a teaching tool. One of the things they say about these um, aria antica, these Italian arias, is that they're used in teaching because they expose all the flaws of the voice. And then once you know what that flaw is, you can kind of work mm. on it. <laughs> But usually when you hear it, you're hearing somebody practicing it. That's the problem. You need more uh, professional singers singing these songs. Uh, the opening of this is played as block chords in a slow Siciliano rhythm. Um, there are rising and falling harmonics. It sets the atmosphere pretty well. It's pretty long, too, at 2 minutes 34 seconds. It's got a very old Southern Italian feel. And then we get a second can't call it a movement, really. Let's say track 13 is an allegretto, the same theme. A lot faster. Very pretty. Fantoni uses a light touch, plays his lines with fleetness. This is settling into the key, and then finally, the third track of this um, piece, we finally hear the theme. Nel Corbino Mi Santo, which is very recognizable for those who know the song. It's highly embellished, but can be made out. There are lots of trills and arabesques placed into the melodic line. And then we go through uh, one, two, three, four, six variations. And then after that sixth variation, we get an allegretto, a very pretty theme. It features some rapid figuration in between the melodies. No resolve. It goes right into the plus vite, which is uh, another variation on Nel Corpio Non Mi Sento. Um, the melody is discernible and played fairly straight. And then we hear in the last track, uh, Nel Corpio again, played fairly straight and slowly with a Siciliano rhythm. So I think the Siciliano rhythm and the, the piece have all come together at the end. It ends on the tonic. I liked uh, variation four on this one. It's got those little slides. It almost has like a Hawaiian uh, appeal to it. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I didn't want to like take up a lot of time going through the variations, but I did say about this, it sounds a bit goofy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as it slides Stands from dissonances yeah. into its resolution. It really does stand out. Yeah. And it's played very slowly too. So the, mm -hmm. the very slow tempo makes it stand out as well. So check that out. That is track jeez what track is this 14 15 16 17 yeah. 18 track 18 okay that's one worth hearing 
Next, uh, La Folie. La Folle. I don't know that this is the same thing as the Folie. I think it might be. But it's a range for a fantasy for guitar here. Opus 363. This starts out a lot of block chords. Um, after a minute, a melody is played, very tuneful, with some filigree work in the next phrase. Uh, then we get a moderato in the uh, track 25, which is the theme. Uh, this sounds like a dance with short four-bar phrases. Nothing tricky for the ear, or repeating anchoring bass notes under the melody. All right, the, uh, the, there are two variations, and uh, they're pretty standard. You get like... Um, a slight lift in the first one, and then eighth note figures in the second one. Track 28 is a minor key variation, and then track 29 is we're back to the rhythmic lift of the theme's first variation. Uh, Fantoni finds the grace called for in the tempo instructions at the beginning of the score. This, this is played in a light and appealing way. And then we end the album with tracks 30 to 32, Trois Valses pour la guitare, three, vol three waltzes. These are all light pieces, and um, as with the three divertissements, they kind of mirror those three as being three pretty basic pieces. They're pretty straightforward waltzes with middle sections. They all sort of proceed like rondos, and um, there's nothing really fancy about them. But they're really nice. Okay, so what did I think about this? Well, I just want to tell you, the star in this recording is the guitarist, Marcello Fantoni, not the composer. The composer, the, the compositions are fine. They just, they just don't really stand out as anything really special. But they're good. And there's some really nice little details in some of them. Fantoni has a crisp, clean sound and can vary that sound in innumerable creative ways. Uh, he was a joy to listen to all the way through, really. In the end, this album is a way to get to know a forgotten composer. And this guitarist um, makes the best possible case for his solo guitar music. Otherwise, the music itself is rather repetitive and won't maintain interest over a long period of listening. I would suggest breaking this up uh, in, if you're going to listen to it. In the wrong hands, it would be Borissimo. <laughs> but we have a great guitarist making it great. Okay, because I've heard people like that play the guitar and they're just strumming their chords and I'm like, you know, do something different, okay? And I can just imagine those people playing this and it would just be... Really not interesting for me. Anyway, I could see these works being programmed as part of a guitar concert with other works for variety, um, but by themselves, they get rather predictable rather quickly. There are nice little surprises in some of them, though, as Russ mentioned on that fourth variation. And also, I enjoyed some of the um, the Campanella mm -hmm. one a, a lot because I like that theme a lot. And the uh, the, the La Folle is, is a really good one, too. I wouldn't hear mind hearing a lot more of um, Fantoni, though, on the guitar. He was really fantastic. Yeah, I enjoyed his performances. Like I say, he brings out the subtleties and uh, maybe adds extra interpretative little niceties uh, on repeats and things that in lesser hands would uh, not be so exciting. So he made them all uh, very pleasant and fun to listen to. There are enjoyable melodies here, and uh, because they're you know, written by a guitarist, a composer, especially. The, the, what's really nice is the voicings and the bass yeah. lines uh, all work really yeah. well on the guitar. And the, the harmonic movement is good. And they give a nice uh, overview, like you say, all in one place of Corelli's concept and probably method for guitar. Explores a wide range of techniques and 
kind of uh, different expressive possibilities that are highlighted by Fantoni's performances. Now, inside of these, there's a range of difficulty, you know, from more simple melodic things up to very technically challenging uh, variations right. and things. Yeah. So I think they would be good pieces to work on for uh, aspiring classical guitarists. I was thinking I might like to get these, and next time I pull out my <laughs> classical guitar, you know, add them as something to uh, aspire to in the future. Some of them right. would be, obviously be too hard for me, but some of the other ones, I liked listening to the lines of movement, especially with the bass line. Right. And so I think they would be good for working on technique. And as you said, they could be interesting to hear in a performance uh, mixed with other types of numbers. So it's probably a good documentation of this music to have. And Fantoni yeah, I think so too. probably brings out the, the best highlights of uh, each piece in his performance. Yeah, and I'd say this is a this would be a good listen for guitarists or yeah. aspiring guitarists because uh, these are well played pieces and it's music that they might want to like you said you might want to they might want to get the yeah. scores of and try to work through them. Th there are challenges. I didn't really focus too much on the technical challenges. He just made everything mm. sound so easy, but there are a lot of nice, uh, nice like kind of accompanimental things going on. My third album is technically not a guitar album; it's a violin album, but features guitar accompaniment. This is Shining Night, and the uh, violinist is Anne Akiko Myers. She's pretty famous. Um, she's an American violinist born in California. Her accompanists here are mostly the guitarist Jason Vio on the guitar, and um, we hear Fabio Bedini on piano occasionally, too. Okay, now, one of the things that, if you've heard Anne Akiko Myers, she's a pretty famous concert violinist. One of one of the one of the top names, she um, has a really beautiful tone. Mm. It's gigantic. It's really well formed, well rounded, and things like that. And she also plays a fantastic violin. She has the X Vuitamp Guarneri Jesu violin, dated from 1751, which many consider uh, to be the finest sounding violin in the world. Well, you know, unless you're a Stradivarius fan, I guess. But you know, there you go. It could very well be true, as this one this is one of the most vivid-sounding violin recordings mm. I've ever heard, really. Uh, Myers herself has a strong, big sound that projects well into the hall and the room on this recording. So this is a, this is a woman who was really born to play concert violin, you know, in a big concert hall. Just for her name, Anne Akiko Myers, uh, she has a Jewish dad and a Japanese mom, and she's American. Like the adult music podcast... This album starts with the earliest music composed and moves through the years to the present day. So she's she's modeled this album on us. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Or maybe it's us that modeled it on her. I'm not really sure. Okay, the booklet, by the way, is very colorful, and this is obviously aiming at a commercial audience. So she's she's big name violinists like this will they will tend to kind of you know aim for that audience. And yeah, uh, I felt like this is sort of a a little more. Looking at the things she's recorded in the past, this is heavy on the melody to sort of yeah. uh, draw in people to the sweetness of that tone. Yeah, this is a violinist who's all about the tone, really, and I'll have something to say about that later in the program. But let's just start with at the beginning. This is uh, Arcangelo Corelli, a Baroque-era composer, and arrangement by Andy Poxon. He's a guitarist, and he's going to be arranging a lot of these for the guitar. This is his La Folia, those famous... Um, set of chords. This has a guitar accompaniment on it by Jason Vio. Andy Poxon is a guitarist who was hired to do the arrangements on this album. And the guitar accompaniment on this is very spare. 
Um, just providing the chord progression. Uh, Myers, as we said, has a big tone and a very wide vibrato that really makes the violinist's presence felt. Uh, she can manipulate her tone as well. Um, she quiets for the repeat of the theme, as does the guitar. Um, and this is a set of variations afterwards. Um, and I went through them all. There are like 11 of them, or 12, 13, 14, 15 variations. I counted. The sound quality is up front. Both instruments are heard well. Spotlight is definitely on Myers. She's got such a big sound that she actually... And also, she's also spotlighted in the recording. So the guitar sort of fades into the back a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could hear it, but it's not an equal partner on this album. And that's not good, because some of these pieces, it needs to be the equal partner, mm -hmm. you know? Anyway, we'll get to that. Second uh, track, Johann Sebastian Bach. This is arranged by Arthur Campbell and adapted by Andy Poxon. The air on the G-string which is from his um, overtures, the third overture um, by Bach. Arthur Campbell was a clarinetist, the guy who um, or arranged the, or arranged, did the original arrangement. Uh, the violin gets the melody, of course, but the guitar's accompaniment in this particular work has a lot of interest, too. This is a very legato melody, and Myers produces a heavy vibrato in her singing tone, which, by the way, according to modern Baroque kind of standards, wouldn't be kind of considered proper to the period, but she's really going for something modern here. For the repeat, she retreats, treats the quiet emerging first note and goes for something a little more tranquil, but still highly song-like. This is beautifully played. I also appreciated the guitar arrangement on this, discreet as it, as it is. It adds a lot of sensitivity to the performance. Third track, Paganini, Cantabile. Paganini wrote a lot of works for violin and guitar accompaniment. Um, and, of course, the violin is in the spotlight. The guitar is strictly accompaniment in this piece, and this has a very pretty, tuneful melody. None of the pyrotechnics we would expect from Paganini. Myers goes for a very big sound in this work, especially in the uh, middle section when she hits her highest notes. She has a sound that projects beautiful harmonics at around 2 minutes and 30 seconds. The piece is pretty much over at 3 minutes, musically speaking, but has 30 seconds stretched out approached to its final cadence. All right. So those are three, well, not the cantabile, but we've heard some pretty famous works. But now we're getting into something that has a little more spice to it. And track four is going to be Manuel Ponce, arranged by Yasha Heifetz, adapted by Andy Poxon for this uh, recording. Estralita, which means little star. It's a song originally. And here we have uh, Fabio Bedini on the piano. Uh, he gets some lightly dissonant chords for spice in his accompaniment as Mara sings this famous melody on her violin. She goes for a romantic, expressive feel with slight retards to draw out the melody and her tone. Track 5 is Heto uh, Villa Lobos, an aria from Bachianas Brasileras, number 5. Uh, we get the guitarist again, Jason Viola back. And there's a lyrical first part. The middle section is more emotional uh, with sobbing, drawn-out melodic lines on the violin. And we get a repeat of the quieter, more subtle opening material and end with a quiet high note. Track six, Duke Ellington, arranged by Richard DeRosa, who is a composer, arranger, drummer, and college professor. Uh, this is In My Solitude, uh, accompanied by the guitar on this track. This is a very sensitive performance of the work, coming across more as a classical composition than a jazz piece here. Uh, it sounds right in the classical song idiom in this arrangement and performance. Uh, no real attempt is made to give this a jazzy feel, which in this case is probably just as well. I don't know that that would have gone well. 
And uh, the reason I think that is because of the next work. This is Astor Piazzolla's Histoire du Tango, the, the history of the tango. It's a four-movement work. And we've heard this, I think, twice this year already. This, I think this is the third <laughs> time. You remember that it kind of goes through four movements, the history of the tango. First of all, Bordel, 1900, so in a... In a how would I say? <laughs> Where the ladies of the night hang out in uh, 19, the 1900s. I just want to say, before we go into this, I said here, people are amazed at how I can name a classical work that's playing in a supermarket or a coffee shop. You know, they ask me, like, how do you know what this is? But the thing is, if you've been listening, if you've been listening to this music all your life, you kind of, yeah. repeatedly, you get to know it. And if you've been listening to this podcast from the first episode, you yourself are as knowledgeable as we are about this piece <laughs> <laughs> because we've heard it yeah. a lot of times. Um, repetition is how you get to know, you know, the names of pieces. Anyway, this particular arrangement features the guitar, and as a result, um, it comes across rhythmically lighter than other performances we've heard, and it's rather appealing this way. Myers relishes her glissandos at the end of phrases. I don't get a heavy sense of the tango feel of this work, and that's going to be a big problem throughout these four movements for me. Um, it's appealing in this form. Uh, the melodies leap out as if in high relief. Now, before I go on, in the beginning, I talked about Aaron Sariel and how he gave those Baroque dances that kind of dancing rhythm. And I think it all, say, music school should have, like, dancing classes so that you can actually move your body mm. to these rhythms and get a feeling for what they are supposed to feel like, and then you'd be able to play them more effectively. This would have helped here, because I don't think uh, Anakiko Myers knows how to do the tango. <laughs> Maybe she does. I don't know. But anyway, because I'm not getting anything like a tango rhythm out of this, and that's really the heart and soul of this work. I mean, it's about the tango. Anyway, the second movement, Cafe, 1930. The guitar opens this movement with a brief solo. Myers goes for the melody and emotion. And and please, I don't want to just blame Anaki Myers because I feel like the guitarist isn't really giving us much of the tango rhythm here either. So, and please don't let me, uh, you know, single one person out. Akiko Myers is always moving when she plays, but again, I'm missing the tango feel. And this is a long movement at 7 minutes and 28 seconds. To be honest, I lost interest midway through. Uh, The playing remains lovely, the guitar accompaniment sensitive, but there's no sense of like that spark to this. I'm not getting the right character of the piece. Myers has also been using the uh, same big, luscious tone from the beginning of the work, and I think this four-movement work requires more variety in approaching it. Now, in this third movement, which is the nightclub movement, there's a bit of a tango feel at the beginning, but I feel like neither player etches the tango quality deep enough to make this work take off. It sounds great timbre-wise, though, from both instruments, and I like the guitar arrangement. Um, I've been hearing Meyer's weeping phrase endings throughout the four movements, and by now I'm craving some variety of tone. And we actually do get that with her dry, harsh scraping at 2 minutes and 45 seconds. But this is the kind of thing where, I mean, she's asked to do this in the score. But sometimes when you ask, like, a, say, a professional violinist who's just been told to make a beautiful tone all their life, they, they almost feel like they're misbehaving when they do this, like, harsh sound. And I'm getting that feeling from the way she's playing this. Like, she feels like she's not supposed to be doing it. You know, it's just a sense I'm getting just from mm. the way it's it comes in and things like that. Okay, we go back to the opening theme, which has some tango movement to it again. We get a quiet interlude 
and then back to a more tango-like rhythm to the end. Myers has roughened her tone up for the ending material. And then we get the last movement, Concert d'Aujourd'hui. Um, this movement is rather brief and lively, and again, not getting the right shape or the right rhythmic feel to this. Uh, Myers almost can't help but play in a curving legato fashion or to shape her melodies to get the contours of a tango rhythm. It's okay, though. All right, track 11, Hugo Peretti, Luigi Creatore, George David Weiss. Ever heard of them? Well, you've heard their song, Can't Help Falling in Love, sung by Elvis Presley. Um, This is arranged by Andy Polkson. By the way, I wonder if listeners know that this song was inspired by a popular French love song called Plaisir d'Amour, composed in 1784 by Jean-Paul Egide Martini. Can you imagine... uh, Elvis in a powdered <laughs> wig, like a river flows. Oh, wow. <laughs> get, get that get that image out of your head, listener. <laughs> anyway, guitar accompaniment here, sensitively played with some attractive harmonics thrown in. Uh, Meyer's big tone saturates the melody, which he plays in her lower frequencies. Um, it's touching. It's a touching performance. After the bridge, she's in a higher register. Uh, this comes across like a classical work from long ago, closer to probably the Martini piece, I would bet. But it doesn't sound particularly classical era-like. It's a nice little bonbon for the album. Track 12, Leo Brower. We're getting the present mm. day now. The last three composers are all uh, living. Leo Brower is very old now, though. This piece is Laude al Arbol Gigante, Laud to the Giant Sequoia Tree, composed in 2020. And it was commissioned for this album. I like the opening where the violin blends in with the guitar, elongating one of the notes in his chord. Um, this is a pretty harsh sounding work at parts, which Meyer's tone nevertheless manages to prettify. It's very stop and start, going from section to brief contrasting section. Okay, next we get uh, two works by Morton Laudidson, born in 1943. The first one is called Direct On, we would say. Uh, this and the next piece were originally choral works. Hmm. This one comes from a cycle called Le Chanson de Rose, the, the, the Songs of Roses, with texts drawn from Rainer Maria Rilke's 1926 collection of 27 poems, Le Rose. This is a pretty tranquil work, full of light regret. It features piano accompaniment, only the second track on the album to do so. Um, he's mostly in a harmony-providing accompanying role. There are some nice chords in this, and it's a comfortable work, beautifully played, of course, by Myers, who sensitively shapes the melody. This rather touched me, and I'd like to hear the choral version. Track 14, uh, Morton Lauditsen, Sure on This Shining Night. Uh, this is um, a, originally a choral work on a James Agee poem, and uh, this was also set as a song by Samuel Barber. So if you recognize the song, the title, that's, that might be why. And it's also touchingly set here. I want to hear more of Lauditsen's music, actually, after the sensitivity mm. of these two settings. And I'd also like to hear this in its choral form. Meyer seems to have a good feeling for Lauritsen's melodies, uh, when to play out, when to hold back. The tranquil conclusion is very satisfying as an ending to this album. All right, so this is kind of a, an album with a few hits and kind of a... a I, I felt like the Astro Piazzolla piece was a big miss, as was the Ellington, which was fine, but it didn't really feel like... I think about when I hear that piece, really. Uh, The notes call this album a musical embrace for all who need it. And um, 
I kind of feel about this album. Last week we talked about Ana de la Vega's French flute album. Um, it's all really beautiful, or most, almost all of it is really beautiful, but feels more like a showcase for the violinist and her impressive singing tone uh, than anything else. There are a lot of hits on it, but th- she does take some chances, and some of the chances don't really work out. All right, my problem with this program is that a lot of these tracks are arranged from songs, and though the melodies are lovely, when I hear a song, I want to hear the words, you know, because I feel like the uh, the words add meaning to the <laughs> to what you're hearing. Okay, the music is merely pretty without the words, and they add because the words add depth to me. Uh, Meyer's violin tone is world class. There's no doubt about that, but it's the main reason. It's the main reason you'd like this album. And if you're not really interested in the violin tone, there's not much else to latch on to. It was a bit too much of the same thing for one sitting for me. That said, this album is trying to reach a mass audience, and it's got a lot of the qualities to help it do that. Uh, while exposing the audience to some new music, which I always applaud. Um, I also really love the two Morton Lauditson works at the end. It's always desirable to find a new audience. So for me, this album was kind of hit and miss. Okay, I, was, I wasn't terribly interested in it, but I don't want to turn people off of it. There might be people out there who are who are big fans of hers and will want to hear it and will enjoy it. Yeah, she, no, no doubt about it, has one of the most lovely violin tones you'll ever hear. You know, depending on the player, sometimes I I just can't handle too much violin. Uh, it just it's too much. <laughs> You're for not me. a big fan no, of the not. violin. I know. That said, yeah, her tone is gorgeous. Uh, can make almost mm. anything uh, sound good. Maybe too good in some cases. Yeah. Uh, but well, that, see, that's part of the problem that, right. with the piazzola, especially. Yeah. I thought it just sounded too good. It shouldn't be. It should be kind of dirty. Yeah. There's something kind of like old jazz. It has that. It should have that kind of you know. Yeah. So I think this is more of a commercial release. It's designed to highlight mm. uh, the beauty of her tone with familiar melodies. But as right. you say, they tend to be, at least the first part of the program, they're in song form. And so you don't get a lot of development uh, other than the variations in the one there. So that's sort of, um, you know, short form. Uh, the Piazzolla, as you say, sounds a bit too pretty and maybe not with enough rhythmic intensity that you yeah. want. You know, from something it doesn't it doesn't Latin. have that low down kind of like you know I'm I'm in a yeah <laughs> still enjoyable though I'm in a dangerous place quality to it you know I guess I I like the last pieces the best I really I like the Brower it was yeah. a bit more challenging and right. uh, some interesting things to listen to there I like that combination of a little bit maybe edgy harmonically with her pretty tone it gets to kind of a sweet spot mm. uh, something a, a right. little more challenging and the Lords and that was kind of interesting, too. Yeah, I became a little more interested in his compositions, too. So what can I say? There's a lot of sweets from the dessert buffet on this one. Uh, I guess. A couple yeah. more um, meaty things mixed in there. As you said, I think it's programmed to generate mass appeal, and it probably will. Uh, if it gets more cl- you know, listeners for classical music who become enamored with her beautiful tone, yeah, that's fine, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to hear her you know, in a different context, and maybe I'll go back and listen to some of the uh, her other recordings, you know, with more complete works right, and her, things on them. She'd be great in the big concertos. Yeah. She's just got a great tone for yeah. that, you know? I imagine you can hear this in the classical coffee shop or something, and, you know, people will, oh, who's playing that? That sounds lovely kind of uh, thing. Yeah. So. yeah. I have to say, I don't have any of her, actually, I do have maybe one or two of her recordings in my, uh, in my collection. Mm-hmm. Maybe there aren't many though. If I if I have any, I'm not really sure. I have I have my favorite violinist. All right. So um, 
Yeah, Morton Loudison. That that the composer's name has to go on my uh, list of uh, keeping your out for more of yeah. his music. Definitely. All right, moving on to the jazz portion of the program. Going to be uh, guitar yeah. focused here as well. It's all electric too. And we have starting out a debut recording. Someone we've never heard of before, and probably hmm. listeners haven't either. But you should. Uh, because this is uh, hmm. an exciting debut here from Mr. Mike Clement. Yeah, this and, is good. And uh, his yeah. self-release, Unfinished Business. And what drew me to this was it's in one of our favorite formats. That's the guitar organ trio. And so yeah. you can never get enough of that. <laughs> so Clement's a fiery up-and-coming jazz guitarist. He's originally from the West Coast of Canada, and he's relocated to the birthplace of jazz, New Orleans. And so he uh, comes from a musical family, started playing guitar at age 11. And uh, this is his first outing on record. He's got a bachelor's degree in jazz studies from Vancouver Island University and a master's degree in jazz from the University of New Orleans. Mm. And he's got a robust performance career in his uh, says so in his profile here, of with different bands uh, and a lot of different styles, uh, not only jazz, but rock, pop, ska, reggae, fusion, and uh, other things. So his trio here is himself on electric guitar, organ, Joe Ashlar, and drums, Shannon Powell. So let's jump into this. The first track is his original composition, Taking It Easy, we start right out with a swinging melody. It's in AABA form. Uh, the B section gets a little bit more bluesy feel with some double stops on the guitar lines. And Clement picks out the melody. Very clear articulation. Nice little trills added in there. A little touch of reverb on the sound. It's very appealing. Ashlar has good pumping bass and swelling chords on the organ. Powell adds a nice light groove with a rim click on the second beat. And Clement shows off his fluid jazz chops right away here in his solo. He adds cool bluesy double stops, liquid flowing lines, but he still twangs out kind of contrasting uh, figures with bites in his note. Uh, Ashlar swells some chords to cheer on behind his solo and follows with his own solo. Kind of starts out with a rounded sound, snaking lines on the organ. And he changes up the stops a bit into some trouncing gospel chords, pulls it way back, then it's kind of surprisingly for Clement to return to the melody. They hold it on an unresolved chord for some final tasty guitar and a big final organ pump to finish it off. <laughs> Track two. Well, this one's a old tune. T for two. 1920s. Yeah. Did you know this comes from the musical No No yeah. Nanette? <laughs> it's a classic. Wow. Yeoman's Caesar <laughs> composition. From the roaring 20s. They take a uh, mm. brisk tempo on it, uh, but I like Clement's relaxed phrasing approach of the melody. When you listen to it, notice his delayed start on the phrases, which despite the tempo gives mm -hmm. it a little bit kind of, you know, nonchalant kind of uh, approach to it. Uh, he throws in some cool lines of descending intervals before the solo break, and he's off uh, flowing, using the reverb very skillfully, timing with his phrases here. So he gives himself, you know, a space to hear that kind of echo coming back before he uh, moves on. Uh, his ideas bubble up. They have a lot of variety and articulation. Now, Ashler starts his solo with zippy lines across the organ keyboard. He works in a percussive repeated note and a lot of other more speedy running lines after that. 
Uh, Powell keeps the drums overall light with brushes, uh, but he mixes in some good fills and kicks. They go around the melody again, and Clement extends out into some more improvisation, building it up with riffs until a final melodic ending line with some runs and a big hit for the finish. Track three will go back to one of his originals, Love Again. Starts with some lush and pretty descending guitar chords for a rubato intro into uh, the kind of bossa beat tune of this one. Clement finds lots of spots around the melody to add little extra phrases and chords over Ashlar's organ chords below. Ashlar solos first with a tone that has a very clear attack to it. He's got fun skittering lines uh, running around there. Clement's solo is fluid, again, with little embellishment excursions on the way. Then later he gets some real bite on some snappy rhythmic figures. They take another run through the melody and some more organ swells to close it out. Track four, another original from Clement of Soul Bop. This one's a fast swinging bluesy tune, fun trilly figures in the melody line. The B section has cool little breaks for Clement to fill. He continues straight into his solo, showing off speedy, boppy lines and having some fun with outside harmonic ideas and a more bluesy finish to it. Nashler has an energized solo with speedy lines and some more percussive, choppy high register figures. Powell keeps it mostly light and tight underneath everything, changing up his cymbal groove in spots. Once more around the melody and some more jamming from Clement to the fade out on this one. I know Mike doesn't like fade outs. So, I know. do not like fade outs in yeah. jazz. Oh, yeah. Or, well, we already talked yeah. about if I ever find one in classical, <laughs> you know, forget about it. I'm just, I think I'm just going to yeah. walk away. Track five is another Clement original cool grandpa. I had a cool grandpa. That's a great yeah. title. Good memories. <laughs> I wonder what the uh, inspiration for that title is. We'll have to ask him. Clement sets the groove with a solo intro, a pumping organ bass, and tambourine come in and we get Ooh. one of those nice kind of uh, cruising as i call them r&b grooves uh, the melody has some catchy stop time syncopated lines and clement also mixes in a more kind of latiny bossa nova articulation on tight chords you know where you kind of you use uh, your fingers you pick and stop them kind of thing uh, ashler solos first getting some nice wailing high note lines some bluesy feel a uh, nice mix of fluid flowing lines and choppy figures. Then Clement is next, starting with some fluid double stops into more lickety split lines. I said, these guys got some really good chops here on the guitar. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting that they're going with just the tambourine uh, instead of drums here. And then Clement comes up with a nice set of related licks that he builds on to finish his solo. And then next is a tambourine solo. Uh, over a pumping organ bass and some choppy comping on organ and guitar. They go around the melody with Clement taking it up an octave at the end for some final doodles. I really didn't think of this as a tambourine solo. I'm surprised, yeah. hearing the tambourine. He gets a little little moment there, but yeah. Interesting. I don't know why they uh, just went with that instead of the kit. Track six, another Clement original, the title track, Unfinished Business. And speaking of doodling... This one has a cool doodling melody that Clement picks out while skillfully joining in the organ chord hits underneath over the hi-hat and tom fills from Powell. It's off to a driving swing for his solo, has cool blues lines and phrases that keep pushing it ahead. Powell's more aggressive here, kicking things up to feed him along in a solo. Ashlar has a bouncy solo on this one, and the organ sounds great here. 
uh, once more through the melody and a little fun with a diminished chord at the end. Track seven, we've got a standard After You've Gone. Super fluid playing by Clement here on this melody with nice solo breaks. Powell keeps the brisk tempo nice and tight and Ashlar has tasty chord hits. Clement really burns through his solo here and Ashler's speedy too, mixing it up with some rhythmic stuttering figures uh, on the way. Uh, Clement trades fours with Powell going around the melody before a final round to close it out, including a nice strain of double stops here. Track eight, another Clement original, Emperor Cusco. This one's got a drum intro with a nice bass thud, bass drum that is, and a ride cymbal. It sets up another cruising groove. The tune has a dreamy melody that Clement floats nicely. Ashler solos first. I like the shorter phrases that he sets things up with into longer lines. Uh, Clement keeps the easy mood with his solo over Powell's ringing cymbal, focusing on sharply articulated figures with melodic intent. Powell takes a solo, mainly on the toms, as the organ gets quiet beneath. Then Clement breezes back in with the melody to an easy finish. And after the final drum thud, someone says, wow, I liked that. <laughs> yeah. I actually wrote that down, too. Maybe it was Powell, yeah. <laughs> We're going to finish up with uh, this tune, uh, Austin Bergeros. How come you do me like you do? That age-old question. Yeah. Uh, so this one's uh, bluesy little stop time spots in the melody. Clement shows off his articulation and phrasing, picking this one out. He has some great chords and double stop figures into his solo. It's all real tasty stuff. Ashler comes out of dark low tones into some high ringing notes and percussive ideas. He has some speedy play over the stop time and really cranks and swells it to a bluesy climax. They bring it down softly for Clement to start another tasty melody run. Uh, milking out the last chord to the end of the recording. So I thought this is a really fun debut from Clement. He's got great guitar chops, fluid lines of creative solo ideas, and a lot of varied articulation in his playing that keeps his solos really interesting. I'm happy he chose Organ Trio as a format for his first recording. We've got a nice mix of tunes. His originals have good melodies, and there's a variety of feels in the rhythm, swinging, boppy, a little bossa kind of thing, all seasoned with a healthy, you know, serving of bluesy sauce uh, on top. <laughs> Ashler's enthusiastic organist, and Powell keeps things uh, tight, makes the extra hits where they count. So it's a young guitarist I'm looking forward to uh, hearing more from in the near future. Yeah, I really enjoyed this album. It's actually a good sort of way to, um, it's a it's good material for a debut yeah. album. It's, it's all it feels good. It gives good vibes. Very straightforward, bluesy in parts. And it came to me across to me as like old school, yeah, like yeah. it's something we'd hear in the fifties and sixties. We were just talking about, well, not like Ramsey Lewis, but that era and before. Mm -hmm. I kind of you know the recording actually kind of put me in the mind of a lot of those old yeah. recordings. So he's in a he's in a good place. Uh, by the way, you said um, you mentioned the the fade out on uh, number four. Now I've mentioned before, like on this podcast, that one of the reasons I don't like fade outs is because I feel like it's like you're leaving the room and walking away. And like now, like years and years later, you kind of imagine in your head that they're still in that room doing that. You yeah, don't know yeah, yeah. what happens yeah. later. I just want to mention just for the record that in my opinion, the best ever use of the fade out is in the Beach Boys song, Good Vibrations. Because the, the song is about, you know, having, you know, I'm I'm picking up good vibrations. It's mm. like a good feeling song, and the 
the fade out comes. So I just imagine that those good vibrations have continued from the time that song is recorded yeah, up until time, now. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's an interesting idea. Yeah. yeah and you hear that, um, that theremin too goes, yeah, yeah. is on the fade out too. So you, you just have those good vibrations from 19, when was that? 66, 67, that yeah, song? I think so, 67. Until the present day. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Good vibrations by the Beach Boys. Best ever song with a fade mm-hmm. out. Well, speaking of good vibrations, we're going to get some more here with this. Uh, yeah, this is my. This was personally my favorite. The the one you're going to talk about now is my favorite jazz album of the week. We've got a new release from Calvin Keys, Blue Keys. This is on Wide Hive Records label. Came out uh, August nineteenth. Now Keys is a uh, native of Omaha, Nebraska. He's now seventy nine years old. Still sounding really good. Wow. He's got an impressive resume. Recording career with big names like Ray Charles, Ahmad Jamal, John Handy, Bobby Hutcherson, Sonny Stitt, Pharaoh Sanders, Joe Henderson. It's quite a list. Uh, he recorded as a leader starting back, I think, the first recording is uh, 1971. He had a bunch of uh, records on the Black Jazz label. This is his 16th recording as a leader and his uh, fourth release on the Wide Hive Records label, which is uh, owned and produced by Gregory Howe. And uh, thanks to Gregory for sending me the complete credits uh, for this recording and answering another question I had about it, because we've got a big cast mm-hmm. of musicians on here, and it wasn't completely clear from what I could see online who's playing on what track, but now I know. And, and I'm going to know who they are, because I ordered this on a CD. You got it coming already, so great. <laughs> got it coming already, couldn't All wait. Right, so we've got, uh, well, this is just a really interesting and fun recording in a lot of ways, so go through the list of performers of course uh, Calvin Keyes on guitar the great Gary Bartz contributing yeah. on alto sax in a really kind of um, mellow mood on here uh, compared to how I usually hear him I've got the great Steve Ture on trombone who we're going to hear next week with his new release we've got uh, cool. Henry Franklin on uh, bass also Scott Brown on bass Babatunde Le on conga Mike Hughes on uh, drums and percussion, tracks 2, 5, 6, and 8. Uh, Thomas McCree, drums, tracks 1, 4, 7, and 9. We've got Mike Blankenship on piano. Mike Rinta, also on trombone. Doug Rowan on tenor sax. And Barry Sax on uh, one track. And uh, producer Gregory Howe also contributes uh, some added cymbals, organ on a track, piano, and uh, bongos in the mix. All right. Yeah, I want to say before before the tracks, I like the old school album cover on yeah, this album too. Yeah, it is good. Too. It's got that old kind of yeah. uh, blue note vibe to it in the dark hues, right. uh, black background. Uh, caught my eye right away too. Yeah, mine. Yeah, me, mine too. All right, we're going to start out with uh, Peregrine's Dive. Uh, this one's uh, credited to Keys, Howe, Blankenship, and Rinta. Starts out with some ringing piano chords. We get improvised alto and tenor sax trombone and keys's guitar that float on this rubata opening bass from scott brown and cymbals enter gradually a latiny funk kind of groove forms there's nice tight drumming here from mccree as we get some rhythmic and echoey sax from gary bartz uh, i think you can hear the extra cymbals in this track around this point from how also next we get a trombone solo from rinta there's a little tenor sax from Doug Rowan, and then Keys is up for a guitar solo. Very cool articulation on rising riffs. He gets into some repeated notes, keeping up the intensity. The horns return on some arranged lines with sax and trombone, also jamming in. 
And then playing hits over our drum solo from McCree. There's some more smooth sax from Bartz and a few final licks from Keys as it slows down with a wash of cymbals. Uh, cool start here. Track to a Keys original CK22. Starts out with a funky drum groove from Mike Hughes with conga added from Babtun Dele. Add a funky ostinato acoustic bass line from Franklin uh, with Keys soon doubling that line above on guitar. And then we get some wailing and bluesy trombone from Steve Terray. The trombone lines get more harmonically adventurous before they come back to the bluesy riff. Keys locks in with some dirty, dirty riffs and ringing chords as the trombone returns from a breather uh, for some more soloing. There's some subtle sustained organ underneath from Howe. You hear it if you listen closely. Uh, back to the bass and guitar groove for a strain. And then Steve Teray takes out his conch shells uh, for some arranged, <laughs> I guess he's got them overdubbed here, uh, parts. He continues on for a bluesy conch solo with some primal cries and cool pitch manipulations in there too. Always fun to hear him play these things. Keys rises up again with sharp biting licks into relaxed double stops. Uh, the conch shells play back up and then Teray returns with a dirty trombone plunger solo. Uh, they return to the intro riff and a trombone line to take it out. Awesome yeah, track. really good. Uh, mm. We've got a mm. Gregory Howe original, a Jaffika for track three. Uh, this one starts with a curious arpeggiated chord from keys to open it up. Then a slow, steady groove with conga from lay drums, bass, and low ring piano chords from uh, Gregory Howe. This forms a setting for keys to roll out some low register guitar lines. There's some scratch percussion added and a big modulation into some kind of tension with metallic sounding tones. I'm not quite sure what's making all these uh, other tones. Uh, Keys pushes on with funky rhythmic lines. Uh, the sound effects become part of the groove scratching from ear to ear. Uh, cymbals ring out as Keys pushes on with a slow burning fire and then some rhythmic figures as the tune fades away. Track four, At Arrival. This one's uh, Hal Blankenship Rinta composition. A very subtle and funky bass from Scott Brown and a piano chord riff from Blankenship starts and repeats with gaps for Bartz and keys to fill in. Uh, the drums are tight and clicky and a tenor sax and trombone line make a basis for some more alto from Bartz. Start and stop swells of uplifting horn chords from Rinta, Rowan, and Bartz that go a little bit major sounding and then back to minor come through. Gregory Howe adds extra cymbals in this mix here. The funky opening groove returns for Bartz to solo over. He's really chilled out with sweet sounding phrases. There's another strain of the swelling horn part and then keys is up for some tight and tasty solo lines. He really catches you with his articulation again here. Bartz joins in for some exchanges with keys until another horn strain comes out. Then Bartz continues on with sweet bluesy lines, some tasty little fills from keys. The groove gradually lightens and fades, uh, leaving Bartz with the final say. Track five, Making Rain from Keys and mm. Franklin. It's got an unhurried drum brushing from Mike Hughes and a little conga lead in to this slow 12 bar blues feature for Keys. Franklin lays down fat, unhurried bass lines. Keys mixes little pearly ringing notes, tension building phrases. Uh, anticipation causing gaps with tight bluesy rhythmic licks constantly coming up with new ideas. I like how he can go from low and fluid lines to sharp cutting little phrases and licks in an instant. 
Franklin gets a reticent and wonderfully lazy bass solo that Keys returns over with a sticky riff and continues on with some chord fun trills the final bluesy ideas as this track fades out. Track six is called Six to Seven, Keys and How composition, and as advertised, starts with a killer bluesy riff from Keys over drums and conga, one measure of six beats and then one of seven. Gregory mm-hmm. Howe adds bongos in two. Trombone and sax lines from Ture and Rowan slide in over the top with a reggae-like feel. Uh, trombone and tenor have exchanges around other horn riffs, Keys brings back the opening riff for a bit, and the horns have more, more, a little more fun. Then Keys gets some bluesy play on low rhythmic lines as the horns riff above, cheering him on. Oh, it ends all too soon. <laughs> Such a cool and unique <laughs> groove, uh, six yeah. to seven. We're going to get the title track, uh, Blue Keys, track seven, Keys and How, composition. A slow blues with a deep drum backbeat from McCree, Keys doodles around the first chorus with nice piano backing chords and electric bass from Scott Brown. Backing horn lines come in for the next chorus from Rinta and Rowan. Keys gets some great sliding licks and repeating riffs through into the next chorus, reaching a climax. Piano solo next from Blankenship with tasty ringing high register bluesy phrases, chiming chords, nice varied articulation into some hammering final chords as the horn lines push it from behind. Uh, Keys comes back for more with a sticky repeated note uh, that he jumps around phrases from. Keeps it going as the horns blow it up to a climax, then take it down for an ending. Track 8. Whodunit. That's with an H as in uh, Houdini. (laughs) Houdinit. Whodunit. (laughs) How in Franklin composition. It's a minor bluesy tune. It's got that kind of Kenny Burrow midnight blues album atmosphere because it's got that broken up bass kind of groove Uh, I got a that strutting kind of drum and conga groove from Hughes and Lay dig in for keys and Franklin's double bass to work uh, together locking in on the melody Uh, keys comes up with great with a great lick that he repeats and stretches out then Franklin breaks into walking ideas for a while as keys takes apart a similar lick idea again uh, before they join back in on the melody uh, for a last run through with some final bluesy tags. Then we're going to end it with uh, BK18, Calvin Keys. Keys gets this one going with one of the coolest blues riffs you're ever going to hear. And it's all in his mm. his feel because it's got this great relaxed hesitancy to the way he picks it out. He's joined by horns. Oh yeah, Rowan's got the Barry sax part added in here with uh, trombone, and they stack the arrangement higher. I think they probably got some uh, overdubs on that. Uh, they keep the riff going. Keys expands on it with phrases of great ringing notes. The horn lines uh, keep the riff going for a, another more legato sax and trombone line to get placed on top of that. Keys keeps the bluesy licks hammering and then breaks into some speedier picking. Some more interesting intervals come into the horn lines in the arrangement. Keys and the horns subdivided into choppy, even 16th notes over the slow beat. Back to the riff with some clipped cymbal hits and another buildup of the horns. And now it's time for a trombone solo from Rinta. The horns jump in behind, keeping the 16th note push, and Rinta makes it bluesy and powerful. There's a bit of some gutsy tenor sax, too. And then heavy drums into more hard bluesy licks from keys as the horns keep the 16th notes going. 
it keeps going, but it gets quieter all around, slowing slightly and kind of reducing to a sparse finish. And that's it. Uh, I love the grooves and looseness in the tunes here. I get the feeling that they worked out just enough of the arrangements to leave you know things open for what might happen uh, when they right. get going on it. So it sounds overall mm -hmm. fresh and spontaneous. Uh, Keys just comes up with endless great riffs, surprising ideas, varied tones and articulations. I like the relaxed looseness and kind of unpredictability of the phrasing that's part of his style. The rhythm section locks in on all the killer grooves on the tunes. The horns make things unique. You've got trombone, two trombone players, a tenor, Barry Sachs on the last tune. Bart's this nice relaxed alto blowing here. And then uh, even you get Therese uh, conch shells adding variety in here. I really recommend this one. Lights low, good glass of whiskey in the evening. This yeah. is funky, fun, and very well done. Yeah, that's pretty uh, nice yeah. rhyme there, too. Yeah, I really dug the groove heaviness of this album. And it also has this really heavy drumming, mm. too, which I just love because I just come from like rock and roll and like this big drums and yeah. stuff, you know, from when I was a, when I was much younger. So I, I really dug that, too. It kind of gave me like a, a, you know, kind of pumped me up a bit. I thought the, the guitar, I like the, the kind of sludginess of the guitar sound. Oh, yeah. And it's kind of, you know, and the 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 uh the grooves were all really appealing yeah it wasn't just the guitar but the entire ensemble and how they interplayed with each other kept drawing me in too there was a there was a lot of variety of well there were a lot of musicians on this too but there were a lot of variety of sort of combinations of sounds mm. and lines and stuff it was just really appealing and i feel like um this will pay repay a lot of listens too that there's a lot more to discover on it um, it was interesting for the ear, all kinds of changing patterns and rhythms. This reminded me a lot of uh, old school blues and rhythm and blues grooves, mm -hmm. you know. There's a sense of uh, familiarity to it, but also it sounds completely new, like something I haven't heard. So I was kind of really intrigued by this. And of course, as I said, I've already put the CD on order because I really wanted this one. I don't know if this will go on the top ten, but we'll see. It depends what else there is at the end of the year. But it's a good one. It's a it's a candidate. Let's say it'll be near the top. And as I said, uh, Keys has got uh, this is his fourth one on Wide Hive Records, and um, mm -hmm. Gregory House a nice little catalog. Check out their uh, website and see the other releases. Maybe mm -hmm. some other good things to listen to on this yeah. label. And I do like the production on here. Makes for a unique experience. Right. All right, we're gonna wind up. Uh, with a recording. Mm. Uh, it's actually led by a bass player, but features a uh, guitarist uh, in the trio. And that's the uh, latest release from Jeff Denson, Brian Blade, and Romain Pilon called Finding Light. And this is on Ridgeway Records. So this is going to be a follow-up to 2019's Between Two Worlds recording by the same trio here. And that's including this pair, uh, Denson and Pilon, who were uh, Berkeley alumni and friends uh, at the time, mm. and then uh, sort of recruited Brian Blade into the mix to get this kind of new, uh, kind of special sound they're working on here. So we've got... Yeah, another heavy-hitting drummer, yeah, but way. not so heavy on this release. So we've got uh, right, Jeff right. Denson on bass, uh, Romain Pilon on guitar, who is uh, from Grenoble, France. He first studied with local teachers there and in 1998 
He got a scholarship to study at Berklee College of Music in Boston, Massachusetts. And that's where I guess he met Denson. And then Brian Blade doesn't really need introduction to jazz uh, fans. Uh, he's got his own group, right. the Brian Blade Fellowship. His quartet uh, with... Uh, Joshua Redman, Brad Meldow, Christian McBride, who just have their new release out uh, last week. Nice. I think I like this one a little better than the last one. And of course, he's played with yeah. uh, Chick Corea, uh, John Patitucci, and uh, lots of other players. Mm-hmm. Now, there's two preview tracks uh, out on streaming for this album. Now, there's a couple of videos of the studio recording on YouTube, but the full release is not available until September 23rd. Yeah, we got to hear this early. Thanks How again to Anne yeah. Braithwaite for our advanced copy uh, so we could check Thank it you, out. Thank you, And one of the perks of podcasting, we get to hear a lot of things before everyone else does. So you can listen to us uh, talk about it first and uh, then check it out this coming week. So we're going to start out with a Denson original, The Daily Jubilee of Dancing Herbie D. You might mm. be wondering... Who is Herbie D? Well, yeah, the Bob album notes, uh, or the recording release uh, information we got, gives us some background. Herbie D is his miniature schnauzer, <laughs> a smart little dog <laughs> with a big personality. <laughs> you can imagine the dog, you know, just waiting to go out for his walk. So we're going to start it out with Denson uh, with a loping swing bass line in 5-4. Blade kicks in with a beat, and Pilon adds some choppy muted notes before coming in on the melody line, and some added chords with a full tone. Uh, the first half of the B section of the melody has a nice change-up in feel, with Denson switching up to repeated high notes, and Blade going a bit lighter in touch. Uh, they go around the melody twice. Pilon continues into a solo, having fun leaving gaps in his rhythmic phrases uh, that surf the dancing bass rhythms from Denson. He gets nice snarly bluesy licks mixed in with his lines and some cool sliding riffs too. Blade mixes up things and hits in all the right spots to drive him on. Pilon brings it to a bluesy finish before they return more lightly to the melody for another round, riffing around uh, for Blade to go around the kit, doing some uh, tasty drum work there as they build it up to the end. Title track number two, Finding Light, by Denson. Uh, He says, with this tune, I I really wanted to encapsulate a sense of hope, a sense of finding much needed light amidst these dark times we've all been living through. Uh, Hmm. Interestingly, it's a kind of a minor melody, but uh, it does have a searching quality to it. Uh, Pilon carries it from the start with a rounded tone and nice legato connection in his lines. Blade gives it a light Latin beat with soft hi-hat and snare work. It's got an extended 36-measure long form, and it's like the C section is the longer part of it. Next time around the form is a solo from Denson with a nice dark woody tone. His lines are melodic, but they keep a nice kind of spring-loaded rhythmic quality in his touch. Now, Pilon follows, keeping the smooth phrasing but leaving little gaps between phrases that create anticipation building things nicely with some rising lines and ending on the final phrase of the melody for his solo from what we heard before. That ties it back to another round of the melody. They repeat the last phrase and give it this kind of fun forward skipping variation um, that finishes it up at the end. Now we're going to go to one of Pilon's tunes, This Way Kuki, C-O-O-K-Y. No, but (laughs) this is also inspired by... His dog. 
So this whose name Pionsky. is Kuki? Yeah, I guess. Uh, is a it says oh, it's a slyly okay. grooving number inspired by some of the funk music I rediscovered during the pandemic. This is Pilon saying he said thinking particularly of Blade's work with Joshua Redman, with its fierce determination and sinewy rhythmic feel. Kuki is uh, clearly a handful. He says on walks I'm always trying to direct him this way, Kuki, and he never goes the way I want. <laughs> <laughs> um, doesn't say what kind of dog he is, but uh, I'm wondering because uh, the, it begins with these fat, I call them ploppy, like they really plop out mm -hmm. uh, bass notes from Denson and tight hi-hat and rim clicks from Blade. Makes a cool mm -hmm. groove right from the beginning. Uh, Pilon scratches some chords into tasty licks and muted tones for a melody on top of that groove. It goes into a more synchronized groove section with Pilon doubling up with low register muted notes uh, along with Denson's bass. Uh, there are tight funky chords behind on another track as well. Uh, so he's got two guitar tracks uh, going here. How I found that out is <laughs> I was wondering, and they have uh, the studio version of this on YouTube. And you can hear two guitars, although you don't see them. And someone asked the same question I was thinking in the comments, and Pilon answered, yeah, it's another track. Uh, so uh, Pilon solos over the groove there next, and there's a lot of space for him to float out lines with interesting harmonic ideas and then resolve them. So I like the way he's working this kind of uh, compositional approach in his solos. He gets down mm -hmm. low and dirty with some lines, answering himself with higher phrases, that then turn bluesy, some hammered chords uh, before working around a riff kind of harmonically. Then he adds some more funky affected guitar on that additional track as well later in the song. There's a big pause before returning to the original groove. Pilon continues on with some new ringing, higher register melodic ideas. Track four, another Denson original, A Moment in Time. This was the first piece written for this album. It says in the notes, Denson paints a sonic surrealist landscape of the unknown, inspired by the novelty of the imposed silence and naivety that would only last a few weeks. Uh, I guess this is talking about the expected uh, shelter-in-place time in the uh, pandemic, uh, but then, of course, it lasts much longer. This one starts out um, with Blade mixing it up around the drums with a deep kick drum but it's in kind of a free form. It's not a groove. Denson adds some rocking kind of whale crying, bowing sounds. When I say rocking, I don't mean, you know, rock and roll. I mean sort of swaying back and forth. Uh, right. And pilon, some descending guitar lines. It quiets kind of and uh, almost disappears, but revives itself with some bass bowing textures guitar chord strums and delicate cymbals. A slow kind of dirge feel forms from Denson's deep bass lines. Then Pilon adds some cross-flowing guitar figures. You know, they go across the rhythms uh, so they're not sinking yet and Blade some more fills. Then Blade locks in with Denson and a slow groove forms uh, for Pilon to layer a relaxed and ringing melody on top of. It gets tense and mysterious with busy bass and agitated drums. Pilon plays wandering and then more crying lines and sharp high figures as the tension intensifies. It subsides and after a soft hi-hat connection from Blade, moves to a new slow groove from Denson. Pilon adding ringing rising riffs, 
Blade gets quiet and Pallone finishes with some weepy and pitch-bent phrases over Denson's deep bass tones. Track five is called Wishing Well. It's another Denson tune, which he apparently transformed uh, from his song Wishing Well that he recorded with his own vocals on his 2016 album Concentric Circles. Uh, no singing on this one, though. Uh, starts with Pilon uh, locking in a melody over Denson's kind of singing and ringing bass line, though. It's almost vocal in quality. Uh, Blade is only adding light textures, but the bass and guitar have a nice swaying feel going. It's a great thick and full bass sound from Denson here as he carries the groove. They really lock in on the syncopated phrasing, and the sparseness gives a fresh quality, aided by Blade's restraint holding back on the drums, really. Pilon solos with very fluid ideas, sometimes adding light chords for contrast and a few double-stop figures. As they push toward the end, Blade gets to add a bit more motion and some final touches. A really fresh-sounding tune, highlighting this muscular bass kind of presence from Denson. Track six, another Denson original, The Tipster. This one is uh, inspired by a cat, a companion who... Uh, long kept his mother company. Uh, this one has a playful minor melody. Pilone handles gracefully while mixing in chords. Denson gives it a halftime feel through the A section and then really locks in with Pilone on the B section with fine accents from Blade. Denson turns to walking under Pilone's solo and it gets really swinging, but they mix up the feel along the way with some fills from Blade. And Pilon mixes fluid lines with occasional more rhythmic riffs and gets into chords by the end of his solo. And Denson solos next with a bounce and forward motion in his playing. Blade is listening really closely, uh, and all three lock in together on syncopated phrases. They go around the melody again to take it out. Then we've got track seven. It's kind of an intro to track eight, Terre, the uh, French word for earth. The intro, track seven, is improvised by Denson. It says it evokes a bluesy Americana melody and feeling drawing on his Virginia roots. And it does really do that. It's bluesy, uh, ringing and down-home thick bass kind of sound here from Denson. He really digs into the lower notes, gives it rhythmic push, adds some cool intervals on the bass and fun harmonics at the end. Uh, nice uh, improvised beginning. Let me get into the main tune in track eight, Tere kind of interesting beginning. It's these dizzying tremolo notes from Pilon starts out mysteriously. Uh, but Denson comes in with an earthy melody on bass. Pilon takes the melody next time around. It's very relaxed waltzing tempo here, giving lots of space for Blade to add textured fills with brushes. And Denson gets a relaxed deep woody solo over a mix of muted and ringing figures from Pilon. It's like a relaxed walk home kind of feeling. Uh, the final section has a more uplifting melody from Pilon before it turns darker. And I like the mix of low, dark guitar and ringing tones. I think he's got two tracks going here, I would assume. Uh, it trudges on to the end with fills from Blade on the way and some final uneasy shimmers from Pilon's guitar. Track nine, uh, another Pilon tune, Espoir, uh, which means hope. Uh, it says, is a spacious anthem that evokes the search for silver linings. These are the notes. Uh, with its, guitar, its rock edge and lean beat, the track offers his distilled taste on Brian Blade Fellowship, the drummer's gospel and folk music-inspired band. It starts with soft guitar, 
textured arpeggios and a line over a slow tom groove from Blade. Denson adds a thick bass line to the mix. The next time around, Piloni merges with a ringing melody. There's lots of space and pauses here. Very tasty chords from Pilon under the melody. Maybe two tracks. Great timed hits from Blade and fills from Denson. The groove turns heavier with Blade digging in and Pilon gets some more edge on there for a bluesy solo that takes a little harmonic turns with the chords in between the dirty bluesy licks. This is really fun for me. It's it's a strain mm. where he goes real bluesy and then no, don't get too comfortable. They're going to move a little bit. So nice progression they've worked out there. Uh, Pilon keeps pushing it uh, with another guitar track added there. Uh, it comes back to the guitar melody and tasty chords section to a final wrap up. And track 10, we're going to finish up with uh, Sixto. Uh, from Pilon, and I was wondering this, but uh, the notes say, Sixto, a piece inspired by the story of Sixto Rodriguez, the musician whose hmm. astonishing story was featured in the award-winning 2012 documentary Searching for Sugar Man. Yeah. Oh, wow. Really great movie if you haven't that. seen it. Yeah. I can't believe it's been 10 years already. But uh, yeah, one of those really... Uh, yeah, I guess it has. There's a few music documentaries where, you know, truth is a lot stranger than fiction. And that's one right. of those. That's uh, worth, that's one's worth seeing. Yeah. So this one uh, starts with an Aryan floating beginning, sparse guitar chords and melodic figures from Pilon over lightly dancing cymbals from Blade. Denson adds bass notes that lock in to give a definite tempo. A tom fill kicks in into a busier groove with a clickier beat from Blade for a while, but it reforms back to the more floating feel. Denson and Pilon lock together on some syncopated phrases, but mostly this tune wants to breathe freely uh, with Pilon's floating phrases. Pilon solos on with short phrases that set up tension into more tumbling lines. Blade swells with fills and Denson intensifies the bass attacks on his lines as Pilon reaches a climax with climbing uh, lines and then some crunching chords with a little dissonance. He keeps riding it with a chordy groove and then tight hi-hat fills from Blade. There are a couple little breather spots before they take it into the final strain with nice muted work from Pilon and fills from Blade and they back off the intensity and the tune just kind of comes to a halt. So that's it. Uh, the recording has an enjoyable openness to the atmosphere uh, it creates. The tunes are varied and interesting with kind of interesting harmonic twists and fresh sounding melodies. As a trio, they really lock in together rhythmically, but they leave a lot of confident space in the rhythms and grooves. They know where each other are going to be. Uh, Denson can carry the rhythm and pulse in his lines enough to really let Brian Blade focus on textures more than keeping, you know, time or anything. And he adds a lot of details to all the tracks, never overplaying on the drum kit. Denson has a big meaty sound that can be really forceful or gentle, and he shows a variety of expression over the recording. And Pilon's playing is fine throughout. One minute he's bluesy and very enigmatic the next. And I like the subtle different tones and textures he matches to the mood of each moment in the tunes. There's excellent synergy here, and this one will reward repeated listenings with new discoveries in each of these tunes. Yeah, I found this album to be pretty uh, atmospheric, mm. I thought, and it had some really cool sounds on it too, and particularly in uh, Terre and tracks seven and eight, mm. you know, that, that piece about the earth. I like the tremolo and the, the big bass sound in those yeah. tracks. 
the, the especially in the ter- intro, the the bass sound was really uh, big and meaty, meaty like yeah. you said. And that that kind of ploppy bass sound in the fourth track was really cool too. There are a lot of great sounds on this album. It's kind of a chilled out and with attention grabbing playing, which would seem to be oxymoronic, but no, it, it actually. I can't think of another way to explain it. It really is that. I heard it as a study in contrasts, you know, big sounds and chill grooves. Mm. Um, the works all have uh, creative intros, and while a moment in time kind of stays the way it started and builds to something more chaotic, the other tracks all snap into something with a recognizable uh, form to them. All the tracks are really interesting, and I liked uh, the way the intros led into the material. Uh, given a certain expectation that is realized in a surprising way. So I was always kind of surprised at the groove that would result from the introductions on this album, right. too. I like Denson's overall sound and style, and I like the emphatic heaviness of the Brian Blade of Brian Blade on the drums throughout. Pilon had the light mm. touch, and I thought Denson on bass and Blade on drums had this kind of heavy sound that contrasted mm. with his touch really well. I kind of thought this I was kind of slippery and I couldn't quite square my head with it and I kind of liked yeah. that about it you know so yeah like you said it would probably re- repay a lot of repeated listening. I think these guys they're very comfortable with each other and they've mm. kind of made this unique sound that's a combination of their different styles and that comfortableness mm-hmm. gives them kind of a you know a, I feel like a little extra leeway of space to leave right the way things flow into. And so that kind of makes you a little bit wondering what's going to happen next sometimes. And, and yeah, I, I got that. I like that kind of open every track really. Yeah. yeah. So pretty interesting. Yeah. You know, kind of a little, uh, mind expanding kind of yeah. <laughs> album yeah. for me. Interesting reaching fresh sounding music. So it'll be out on the 23rd. Uh, so remember you, you heard it about it here first. Yeah. And you'll hear, you, we'll put up all the, um, the tracks when yeah, I'll, I'll add it, it comes the, out, uh, so you can check on that date. Listening, mm-hmm. uh, it'll be there. Playlist when yeah. uh, everything is available. Yeah, so hopefully uh, this is their second uh, recording. Hopefully uh, we'll, we'll get some more in the future because it uh, seems to be a good uh, combination of musical personalities here. All right, that's the and summer strum. guitar. Yeah. The last strum of summer. <laughs> How sad. Because next week we'll be recording in autumn. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be autumn for our next our next uh, podcast. We're gonna go uh, big and brassy to start autumn. Out. We're going big and brassy. Yeah. Okay, I get. You know, we're also going big and brassy and classical too. Usually, I can't match that. There aren't all that many mm. brass classical albums out. I I gotta get a brass ensemble classical mm. album, but there haven't been in many being released lately that I've noticed. But I've got all soloists for next week. Okay. I think it'll be interesting. Yeah, and I'm going uh, mm. all trombone next week. All trombone. I got two trumpets and a French cool. horn. Got the whole uh, brass mm. ensemble out. As I mentioned... Yeah, there we go. Have a whole ensemble. I've got mm. to do the Steve Turay new release, Generations. Uh, I had to listen to that this week. I'm looking forward to hearing that, It was actually, really good. So. And I've got... Yeah. You heard it yeah, already, Yeah, I huh? listened to it last night. Yeah. And okay. that came out on the 16th. And I've got, to, I've got to make a decision. I've got, I think, four other trombone releases. <laughs> you don't get a lot of trombone. They all oh, came out. Okay. So I got to yeah. pick from my favorite of the other two and so we'll have uh, all trombone always a tough call next week yeah yeah i had to like i, I was kind of late on two of the there, there are two recent guitar releases i wanted to get on but i haven't been able to on this um episode but you know so i'm ready for another guitar yeah. episode soon because i've got two more that we really have to talk yeah. about like sean shiba put out an electric guitar yeah. album and just i think it was and, yesterday the julian lodge 
new recording came out. And yeah. I listened to that too. And that's yeah. got a really chilled vibe to it that's cool. So we well, definitely like want to talk about that. And there's always a lot of other guitar. Really, I mean, I think piano trio is the most things that come out. And second, in jazz, yeah, and second right, yeah. to that is some yeah. sort of guitar. So I've always got a long list. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, picking something that's, you know, most interesting. So, yeah, we can do another guitar episode in uh, autumn soon. Yeah. yeah, we'll have an autumn, autumn guitar. And probably another piano one too soon i've got a lot of piano stuff to right, go well, to piano i guess in classical music you yeah, always do sure. piano i've got two ear bending piano albums that i could do i don't want to do them both in the same episode though it might drive us both crazy because <laughs> both of them are double albums oh. too they're like two hours oh, long split those up yeah yeah we should split those up it's not gonna be i can't i don't have all this time yeah. now and especially with things like that i'm gonna wind up because often i'll just you know kind of write down type out my comments but if these are going to be difficult records that I'm going to have to think about what <laughs> yeah. I want to say go about easy them. on ourselves how do yeah. I explain this what yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to going to have the pen in the air waiting for the thought to come oh mm -hmm. man so look forward to uh, Brass Tones next week we'll get that playlist up after we put this up tomorrow if we make it through the typhoon coming through but no, uh, we should I think it will be should fine should be fine I hope my house is fine yeah, that's what the tree doesn't come through my old house. <laughs> just just so listeners know, I have this old Japanese house. It's one floor. And this this guy, I have a, a gardener because I have a little garden in front that I can't handle. It's all bamboo and stuff. I don't know how to garden this stuff. And there's this old tree like right across the street from my door. And if it ever falls, it would fall right on my house, right on the door. <laughs> This Japanese, the gardener pointed that out to me. <laughs> like It was like, like bad feng shui or something. Yeah. I don't know. Hopefully that'll stand. It's a, it's a pretty big tree. I hope it. I hope it's okay. It'll definitely kill me if it hits me. <laughs> so. Well, hopefully we'll uh, both be here next week for episode uh, eighty-two. <laughs> we're planning to yeah. be here, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll do some brass happens. music. Uh, until then, stay tuned. Otherwise, they'll be playing brass music at our funerals. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. Uh, come check us out on Facebook uh, during the week. I'll get some more new releases up there. Also, the playlist for next week's episode that will be on Deezer. I always post that on Facebook, too, so you can uh, come check that out with new recordings on there. And until next week, episode 82, have a good week. Keep listening, and we'll see you again next time. Mm -hmm.